Well, good morning once again, ladies and gentlemen. It is great to see each of you here today. We have visitors in our assembly. You have chosen to be in a good place. And we pray to God that you will be benefited by being here. We have one more service after this morning. We have a service this evening at 5 p.m. And if you notice on the slide, the very bottom line, he began to build. We're going to talk about that man in Luke chapter 14. Then we're going to talk about you and me. How that maybe we began to build and what we can do to correct some of the mistakes that we've made in the past. But thank you for being here this morning. In the past several years, I have visited churches all across the country, a number of local churches. And I've seen a few churches that are holding their own. I've seen some churches that are dying. But I've also seen some churches that are doing very well. They're growing. They're prospering. And how do we account for these differences? I think it is evident that some churches are doing some things that others are not doing. Years ago, when I was a very young man, I read a book by W. Clement Stone entitled Think and Grow Rich. And Stone in his book said, if you want to be a millionaire, you need to do the things that millionaires do. Well, millionaires don't become preachers, at least most don't. Or preachers don't become millionaires, maybe we should say it that way. But he made a good point. If you want to be a millionaire, you need to do the things that millionaires do to get them there. The same thing is true if you want to be a concert pianist. I remember reading a story several years ago about a, a garden club that invited a concert pianist to come in and just give a little mini concert. And afterward, one of the ladies went up to her, uh, to the pianist and said, Oh, I would give anything to be a pianist like you. Really? Anything? Would you do the things that a concert pianist has to do in order to reach this level? Same thing is true with an Olympic athlete or even, even someone who runs a simple marathon. Years ago, I decided I was going to run a marathon and I got Runner's Magazine and I read in there, if you want to run a marathon, you need to do the things that marathoners do to prepare. And so it is with churches. Some churches are successful and it's because they're doing some things that other churches are not doing. And whatever these churches are doing that make them successful, that's what we need to do. This isn't rocket science. It doesn't involve something beyond our capability. This is something that we can do. There are certain things that great, that great churches do that make them great. And that's where we get our title, Great Churches Do Great Things. And I'm going to give you seven critical elements, things that I have observed among great churches that they're doing that cause them to prosper and grow. And the very first of those things is that they stand for truth without compromise. The church is intended by God to be the pillar and support of the truth. I'm looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse number 15. In 1 Timothy 3.15, here's what the apostle wrote to the young preacher. He said, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I understand that to mean that the church preaches the truth. It proclaims the truth. It propagates the truth. And it stands for the truth. Churches must not depart from the truth of the gospel. You know, we live in an age of great compromise when we are expected to kowtow to the whims and desires of society. But in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, 
This text points out that there's only one gospel and we dare not depart from that one gospel. The apostle wrote to the Galatians and said, I marvel that you're so soon turning from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He said, which is not another, but there are some who would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel, and we've got to stand for that gospel, and we've got to stand for that gospel without compromise. You know, folks, not every church stands for truth. Someone says, well, don't all churches basically teach the same thing? No, they don't. Some churches compromise. They say, you know, if we'll just water down this message and not preach it so hard, not be so blunt and direct, it will attract more people. As one fellow said, you know, you will attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. And I agree with that. But we're not trying to attract flies. We're trying to attract people to the glorious gospel, people who will come to Christ and will obey Jesus Christ in salvation. We've got a mission, a mission before us. And if we don't get this right, folks, nothing else that we do really matters. Some churches believe, though, that they will be more successful if they weaken the gospel message. And I ask the question, more successful? More successful at what? In the final analysis, churches that don't stand for truth, they do more harm than good. And so when it comes to teaching on salvation, we're going to teach what the Bible says, faith, repentance, and baptism, and teach that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. That's what he himself said in John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, not one of many ways. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I'll tell you, folks, that is not politically correct. I remember watching just a few weeks ago an interview where Larry King had Joel Osteen on his program. And he asked him, who is going to heaven? Do you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven? And Joel Osteen said, well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say who's going to go to heaven. You know, that's, uh, that's above my pay grade. I, I, I really can't tell you who's going to heaven. You know, see, you've got people like that who want to compromise. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. And that's where we have to stand. We stand for the truth then about Jesus. We stand for the truth on the Holy Spirit and his wonderful revelation, the New Testament. We stand for God's truth on the nature of the church. We preach these things and we must be crystal clear and we do not run from controversial issues. Great churches, they grow, they thrive by teaching the truth. When controversy comes, they tackle the controversy with the word of God. You know what Satan hates? He hates it when churches stand for truth and he hates the growth that comes from standing for truth. But God, God loves it when he sees people who stand for his truth. That honors God and that glorifies God. And God loves the growth that follows when that's the case. So great churches do great things. 
Great churches stand for truth without compromise. Secondly, great churches promote an evangelistic culture. Evangelism is God's great work. It is a work that is given to us. In Matthew chapter 28 and in verse number 19, just as Jesus is about to leave the earth... He says to his disciples, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I recognize that this was originally given to the apostles. However, by extension, the early Christians recognized that they had a mission to carry out this in their generation. And I'm looking here at 1 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says this, From you sounded forth the word of the Lord. Now look, these were not apostles, but they recognized that they had a mission to carry out the Great Commission. From you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, but also in Achaia, and in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. The Thessalonian church, even though at this point, this church was only a few months old, these people were out teaching the gospel. They recognized that they had a mission. And my friends, we are on a mission from God. The first time I used that language at Dallin Road was maybe 15 years ago. And there was a little chuckle that went through the audience when I said, we are on a mission from God. And I asked someone afterward, what, what was the little chuckle about? And someone says, well, you know, Max, uh, the movie, The Blues Brothers, uh, uh, that's what they said. We're on a mission from God. I've never seen the movie, never heard that phrase from the movie. And that's just a fantasy. That's just a movie. We are on a mission from God. And evangelism has to be a part of what we are. It's in our DNA. It's a part of our culture. That's what great churches do. They don't, they don't water down the gospel. They teach the gospel and they see it as something they ought to teach to everyone. Listen to Jesus. I'm looking at Matthew chapter 9. Jesus in this circumstance is looking at the great crowds that have gathered around him and he's moved with compassion. It says in verse 36, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary, they were scattered, they were like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. There need to be more people getting out and doing the work of evangelism. And so we answer that call of evangelism. I will tell you, folks, there are some churches that just do not take seriously the work of evangelism. Oh, preachers may get up and preach on it, but they themselves may not do much evangelism. They're not out seeking the lost. You know, there's a whole lot more said about evangelism than there is done about evangelism. And we've got to be about the business of doing. Let me ask you a question. What do you think God wants? What do you think God wants when it comes to evangelism? Do you think God wants more evangelism or less? Go ahead, say one of those words. Either say more or less. I'm listening. Thank you. God wants more. Now let's talk about the devil. What do you think the devil wants? More or less? The real question is, what do you want? 
You see, we all, all want more evangelism. We want to see more souls saved. Great churches have people who are committed to the work of evangelism. Someone says, Brother Dawson, I don't think I could teach a home Bible study. And, and you know what? You may be right. But let me give you four simple things that you can do. And we could do a whole lesson just on these four things. First of all, you could let your light shine in this community. You live right before the people in this community. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You let your light shine. You live right and other people will see that you're a person living right. Secondly, you need to speak. Speak the truth in love, says Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. You know, we always talk about the things that are important to us, don't we? We speak about important things. So, is there a football team that you support? Maybe you support the Oklahoma Sooners, huh? Maybe you support the University of Texas. Do you have a football team? You probably do, and you talk about that during football season. Maybe you've got a favorite coming up in the Super Bowl. You'll talk to your friends about that. We talk about things that are important to us. And what's more important than this gospel? What's more important than Jesus Christ? We ought to be talking about him. And so you need to let your light shine. You need to speak about the gospel. And then thirdly, you need to invite folks to come to your assembly. Invite folks to come to a Bible study. Someone says, but I can't teach that study. You've got others in this congregation who can. You invite people. You've got some little cards on the little table in the foyer that recommends the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. Use those cards, invite folks, and then when people show up here, you enfold them, you embrace them, and you make them feel good. You welcome them. So there's four simple things that you can do, and you didn't even have to teach a home Bible study. One, you just live right, you shine, you speak, you talk to others about the gospel. Thirdly, you invite folks to come, and when they show up, you welcome them. Make them feel like they've come into a good place because they have. We're engaged in evangelism. And great churches, that's what they're doing. Great churches take seriously the work of evangelism. Here comes number three, and this is a negative in the minds of some people. That is, great churches consistently practice church discipline. This is the point where some people want to balk at God's will. They say, you know, if we, if we exercise discipline on unruly members, it's going to cause trouble. And there are people, there are people who would leave the church when that's the circumstance. Or visitors, they wouldn't come back if we do that. But the local church has obligations to God and to its members to consistently practice discipline. We saw Hebrews thirteen seventeen in our earlier lesson in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 where it talked about the responsibility that members have toward their elders. It said, obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Elders have to give account for the souls and their charge. And that means the souls and their charge then are accountable to the elders. And when people go astray, when they, when they become erring Christians, they need to be brought back. And God, God demands, he doesn't suggest, God demands that erring Christians be addressed. Listen to this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse number 6. 
He says, we command you, brethren. Notice it's a command. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Withdraw from every brother. Verse number 14, though, says this. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You want to win him back. He's gone astray and you want him to come back to the Lord. And so great churches, they consistently practice church discipline. And, and listen, it's commonly believed that if a church practices discipline and does it according to scripture, churches will decline. The fact is, the opposite is true. Churches fare much better in the long run if they will deal with disciplinary issues. You see, great churches, they know that God's way is right, and they know that God's way is best. They do God's will, not man's will. And then this, our fourth thing that great churches do is that they reject all cultural barriers. Did you recognize that Sunday continues to be the most segregated day of the week across America. In some towns, there are black churches and there are white churches and never the twain shall meet. And that's sad. That's not God's will. It's God's will that people of all backgrounds, of all races, worship together. And I recognize sometimes we have language barriers. That's a separate issue. I'm talking about segregation. God's will is expressed in texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Listen to what the apostle writes there about the church. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we've all been made to drink into one Spirit. One, one, one. That's what you see in that text. Been baptized into one body. Whether black or white, red or yellow all baptized into one body. It's not God's will that people be segregated according to race. Listen, we still have racial issues in our culture. And God's church is not the problem. God's church, the way it's set out in the scripture, God's church is the answer to racial issues in our culture. Great churches are made up of people from every cultural background, people who have a common bond. And what is the common bond that keeps us together? Is it the fact that we've all been to the same school and all have the same level of education? Is it the fact that we all are on the same socioeconomic ladder? We all make about the same money? Or is it the fact that, that we're all bound together because we all love fishing? We are bound together because we love the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't make any difference what your color is. We're all baptized into Christ. Those who have obeyed the gospel have become part of one body. And if we're going to be together in heaven, we've got to learn to be together while we're in this life. And some folks don't like that. Some folks don't like that. But great churches are made up of people from every cultural background. The common bond is our faith and love toward, toward Jesus Christ. And so... We reject cultural barriers. That's right. We reject that. And then this. Great churches promote a spirit of excellence. Everything that we do, whether it's song leading, 
reading the scripture. Didn't the brother do a great job this morning reading the scripture? I really appreciated that. Whether it's waiting on the table, passing the communion trays, cleaning the building, everything we do ought to be coupled with a spirit of excellence. We're going to do the very best we can because our God is awesome. Our God is great and we want to give glory to his name. He deserves the best that we can offer. Look in your Bible in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Look at just a few verses in Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. I want you to see what the people of God were doing. I'm not talking about the heathens out there uh, outside of Israel. I'm talking about what the Israelites were doing in this time. Chapter 1, Malachi, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. God then says, if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am the master... Where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priest who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? What have we done wrong? He says, you offer defiled food on my altar. You are bringing garbage to my altar. That which is of no value, that which is of no account. And you're offering it to me as a sacrifice. They had said, what are we doing wrong? God says, that's it. You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it to your governor, the governor of your province. You want to offer him a gift. You're going to give him a blind animal, a, a sick animal? You're going to give him something that's of no value, that's, as far as you're concerned, it's garbage, it's trash? You're going to offer that? You would never do that. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 14, Cursed be the deceiver. These people say, well, this is all I've got. They're offering that kind of animal. They are deceivers. Cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and who takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Oh, he's got the right sacrifice. He could give it, but he offers to the Lord what is blemished. God says, I'm a great king. God reminds the people who he is. He is the king. They are his subjects. I'm more than the governor. I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let me ask Colton a question. Where's Colton? Right here. Colton, when's your birthday, son? January 15th? 16. Just a little over a week ago, and you just turned 17. Did you have a birthday party, Colton? You have a birthday cake, maybe. Did anyone send you a card? Anyone give you a gift? Okay, so it's Colton's birthday, and you're going to give him a gift. Now, I happen to know that Colton likes football, and he likes basketball. I saw them yesterday tossing the ball back and forth, and I see a goal, a basketball goal, in his driveway. 
And so you're going to give Colton a gift on January 16. What are you going to give him? Someone says, well, you know, up in the attic, we got an old basketball that's got a hole in it. Let's give that to Colton. That shows you don't care anything about him. You're going to give him something that belongs in the trash. You don't treat Colton like that. And my friends, you don't treat God like that. If you offer to God worship, you give God the very best that you are capable of. You may not be perfect in what you offer God because we all stumble from time to time. A preacher may get tongue-tied. He, he may say the word, mispronounce a word. A song leader may get the pitch wrong, but he's doing his best to get it right. We serve an excellent God and a spirit of excellence ought to cover everything. It ought to be like a blanket. In everything we do, we want to give God our best. It troubles me when I see song leaders who are ill-prepared. Listen, I was at a service two years ago in another state. I was at a service on Wednesday night. I was there. I had been invited to speak. And I had my slides all prepared. Everything was ready. And I, I gave the men my little jump drive with the slides on it. And the two or three men who supposedly knew how the slide system worked, they couldn't get it to work. They said, where's the preacher? He knows how to do it. The preacher showed up at exactly 7 o'clock when we're supposed to start the service. And he can't get it to work either. And then, after seven minutes of trying, it's now 7.07, he said, uh, has anybody prepared songs for tonight? Okay, uh, let me pick a couple songs here. So we didn't have the songs on the slide like you have this morning. Ill-prepared worship. That's a disgrace when that's the case, my friends. We don't worship God like that. This is about God. It's not about us going through some motions. I was at a church in another state years ago that had a tile floor. And I'm telling you the truth. When I walked down that center aisle, there were dust bunnies following me down the aisle. You know what dust bunnies are? That's those little clumps of dust that gather under your bed when you don't clean under your bed. The building was filthy. The bathroom was nasty. And the worship was careless. That's a disgrace when the people of God worship like that. We can do better than that. And so whatever your gift may be in this church, whatever skills you may have, whatever you're called upon as a task in worship or in cleaning the building or in passing out tracts or whatever they may be, a spirit of excellence must possess all that we do. I have read the Bible from cover to cover. There is not a place in the Word of God where God ever says, I am happy when my people offer me service that is mediocre. No, sir. God is pleased when we give God our best. We cannot say good enough. 
is good enough. It's not good enough for our God. We strive for excellence. We promote a spirit of excellence. And then we promote a spirit of unity. You know, it's not just strong teaching that promotes unity. It is determination on the part of brethren. It is, it is a disposition that says, in this congregation... With God's help, we can weather every storm, whether it's an attack from outside, people criticizing the church, or whether it's a problem inside. With God's help and following God's word, we can stay together and we can weather every storm. It is our obligation to promote unity. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, and verses 1, 2, and 3, listen to this text in Ephesians 4. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. He's telling you here how to be united, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, another translation says, being diligent, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It should be within your heart that you want to be united with the other believers in this body. And it's not your job to say, well, I think we'll take 10 of us and we'll just start another church down the street because we've had a couple bumps in the road. We don't do that. It is God's will that we be together and it requires diligent effort. But I've seen brethren who say, Oh, well, if we stay together, fine. And if we don't stay together, that's fine, too. It doesn't really matter to me. My friend, it matters to God. And we dare not... We dare not divide the local congregation on some matter of judgment. Great churches are made up of people who've got a determination to hang in there. We're going to stick together. We're going to work out our problems by solving by solving those problems with the scriptures. And then this. Great churches have growing members. That includes the leaders of the congregation, whether it's the elders or the preacher. Bible class teachers need to be growing. Song leaders growing. Everyone growing. You know what Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And when you look at that passage in Second Peter 3, 18... You may not have noticed the end of that verse. It says, Growing grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. We've been talking about giving glory to our God. You want to give glory to God individually and personally and as a group? You grow, growing in grace, growing in knowledge. That gives glory to our God. And there's so much we could say about that. But it's something that great churches do. Great churches have people who are not satisfied with their current level of knowledge, their current level of service. They want to grow. They want to do better for God. They want to reach higher. They want to give God more, not less. Those are seven things. They're all from the Word of God. And when I see growing churches today, I can identify these things. But there's one more thing that I'm going to add, an eighth and maybe it's the sum of all these others. And that is believing in the success of God's work. It's faith. It's trusting God that His ways are always right, that His ways are always best. But it's believing that we're going to be successful. You know, when the Apostle Paul preached, he, he talked about his preaching in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 when he said, when he said, 
about the gospel of Christ that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Christ. I, I think when Paul went to Philippi, as we noted earlier in the lesson, when Paul went to Philippi, he went there to preach. And he believed that he was going to be successful. And you know what? He was successful. He converted Lydia in her household. He converted the jailer in his household. And we don't know how many more he converted. When Paul went to Corinth, he believed he was going to be successful. And it's been my experience that in the course of the several years, the 50 years that I've been preaching, one of the marks of success is when people believe that God's work can be successful in this time and this place. I remember when I was getting ready to move to Texas, it was April of 1978, and I came to the, what was then the Pinecrest Church to try out. And a friend of mine, a man who later became my friend, I had barely met him, at the end of that day, I preached three services on Sunday. And at the end of that day, the elder said, okay, Brother Max is going to stand up now and everybody can ask him whatever questions you want. And, and a brother named Brother Brown, he raised his hand and he said, Brother Max, is, is it true up in Indiana where you've been preaching? Is it true that up there, that it's just like it is down here, nobody wants to hear the gospel? We can't convert people today, you know. I said, no, sir, that's not true up there, and it's not true here either. There are people who desperately need the gospel, and we've got to believe in the success of God's work. We're not in this thing to fail. God's kingdom is a kingdom that's going to endure. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. We even sing a song based on that. This kingdom is one that will last forever and ever. Amen and amen, says the song. And it's going to be successful. But we've got to believe in its success. We don't believe in failure. You know, one of the things I've seen in football, you know, those New England Patriots, they got knocked out of the, uh, of the playoffs a week or two ago. But you know, they don't get knocked out very often. And the past 10, 15 years, they've won over and over and over again. You know, one of the reasons that, that the New England Patriots win it's because when that Brady Bunch goes out on the field, they believe they're going to be successful. They're going to defeat the other team. And you know what the other team believes? They believe that too, that, the, that Brady and his guys are going to win. But we're going to give it our best shot. But typically, the Patriots win. And as much as you may hate Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, as much as you may dislike them, the fact is they've been eminently successful, the most successful team in recent years. And one of the reasons is they have prepared themselves for success and they believe they're going to be successful. We need to have that kind of mindset that we're in this thing to be successful in winning souls for God. And look, maybe it starts with you. You're one person, but you can start with that kind of mindset and you can encourage it in others. And look, maybe there's someone here today that's not even a Christian yet. And you, you have to look at yourself and wonder, why are you not a Christian? God's offering you great things by the gospel. Complete forgiveness of all the sins you've ever committed. Get a fresh start. If you believe in his son Jesus, confess his name, repent of sin and be baptized into him. If that's what you would do. The Lord wants you to be a part of his kingdom. And then you do these kind of things that we're talking about. 
Why don't you come on now while we stand and sing? Come now, please.